Please join me with Psalm 116 on page 435. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice, he heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our Lord is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Our second reading for tonight comes from 2 Corinthians 4, which can be found on page 818 of your Bibles. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Be a great thing if you uh, kept that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, open in front of you. If you're the kind of person who uh, is helped and stays awake by taking notes, there are pads around. Uh, but if you have other techniques uh, to stay awake and pay attention and hear the word of God, use them. Uh, one of the most effective is praying, so we're going to pray now. Lord and Father, we uh, thank you for your extravagant love. Uh, We thank you for uh, the reminders we've had of uh, last weekend where we had a chance to go away and reflect on the way in which you have loved us. Father, we pray now that we would be able to delight uh, in your word, knowing that it comes out of your love for us. Father, we pray that you would take away uh, the distractions uh, that are in our minds from uh, either the fun of today or perhaps the the hardships of today. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to focus entirely on what you have to say to us and that by your spirit you would speak to us, change us, that we would more and more reflect the image of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. How will we display the glory of Christ? You may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Confession. At its beginning, it summarised the meaning of life as to glorify God and enjoy him forever which sounds great and it sounds tight and it sounds very sound. Uh, But what does it look like? It it isn't that we have to make him glorious. I mean, God is glorious. He doesn't need our help on that front. But how do you display that truth? At the end of this month, as uh, Haley's already brought to our attention, as we have beautiful flyers showing, it's, it's our 125th celebrations. Uh, We're delighting in the fact that for 125 years from this building, the glory of God has been declared and affirmed. But how will we show the gospel's glory in this community at this time? How will you glorify God with your colleagues? How will you make Christ's glory seen with your your neighbours and with your friends? About 125 years ago in the Victorian era, uh, there was the notion of muscular Christianity. Which kind of just sounds exciting, doesn't it? Uh, There's a push for for physical fitness to demonstrate the superiority that Christianity had. So Thomas Hughes, the author of Tom Brown's School Days, if you uh, know of that book or the parodies of it, uh, he wrote, It is a good thing to have a strong and well-exercised bodies. The least of the muscular Christians has hold of the old chivalrous and Christian belief that a man's body is given him to be trained and brought into subjection and then used for the protection of the weak and the advancement of all righteous causes and the subduing of the earth which God has given to the children of men. Not sure why we didn't put that on the bottom of our kind of fit advertisements for the 125 celebrations. You know, when the European powers went scrambling into Africa to conquer it in that period, they went for the three C's, commerce, civilization, and Christianity. You know, there was this certain confidence that with the benefits of, of commerce and civilization, they would, they would be able to evidence the value of Christianity. Now, today to us, it sounds you know, imperialist. It sounds archaic. 
that note of worldly success demonstrating the glory of God resonates. You know, there's still that desire for our bodies to be beautiful and for, for many people that has a kind of spiritual motivation underlying it. And there are still preachers around today who would tie the glory of Christ to their success. So if you, you can't sleep uh, next Sunday morning, in the wee small hours, you can catch Creflo A. Dollar uh, of World Changes Church in Atlanta. Uh, he's on kind of ordinary, I think Channel 10 at some ridiculous, you know, 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Uh, he also happens to be the owner of several Rolls Royces uh, of large homes, plural, uh, and a private jet. Uh, his comment, and you've got to imagine me here as a kind of black Southern Baptist, uh, you ain't going to have no love and joy and peace until you get some money. Uh, sums up, at the very least, how he seeks to express the glory of God. And again, to us, we listen and we kind of go, that's a bit crass, isn't it? A little bit simplistic, a bit offensive. But is it because we're persuaded that the glory of Christ will be better demonstrated by us having just upper middle class security with a respectable, unostentatious level of wealth and comfort? That our kind of conservative, secure life will be better showing how great Jesus is than Creflo Dollar who's living out his view of how God will be honoured. See, how will Christ's glory be shown in you and me? Now, of course, it does make sense that worldly success will flow from obeying God. Uh, findings published last week that you will be healthier and wealthier, uh, by and large, if you commit to a marriage relationship at a younger age than if you shop around in serial monogamy. And it shouldn't surprise us that um, God, as our creator, knows how we best function. Uh, and you will get ahead in this world if you kind of operate the way he has designed us to. But is that how you're going to demonstrate the glory of Christ in your life? The Apostle Paul had been entrusted with the message of the new covenant. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 3 last week, it was a new way of relating. It was a greater, a greater glory than the old because it came with the Spirit. And so therefore it brought life rather than condemnation and righteousness and, and transformation to become more and more the image of Christ. It meant that there was boldness that we could have with God and in boldness with each other, with other Christians. And at the start of chapter 4, Paul is, is unrelentingly optimistic in his ministry, a ministry given to him a Christ killer on the road to Damascus. 4 verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. He doesn't lose heart. But it isn't because of the health and the wealth that Christ's glory has brought him. It's because he's grasped the simple truth and that has shaped and reshaped his life. That, that no man or woman can fancy themselves great and at the same time declare God is great. So how will we make Christ's glory known? By forgetting our own glory and by focusing on his so Paul was caught there. He was defending himself against a group of Christians that he'd actually established. And they were a bunch of Christians who were obsessed with worldly success. And they were fairly enamoured with themselves and how gifted and talented and beautiful they were. And Paul goes on to show them how Christ was really going to be seen as glorious in him and them. 
three major ways I want us to look at. Um, one is, he says, it's by not tampering with the message. Second, by allowing himself to be visibly weak. And third, by focusing on what it is that will produce eternal glory, not temporary glory. So the first one, Paul first of all wants him to understand that he is going to show the glory of Christ by not tampering with the message at all. Verse 1 again, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather... We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, he's a little bit self-defensive here uh, in his words. He says he hasn't been secretive. So Paul had refused to take money and financial support for them, but he was at the same time raising money for the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem who were suffering uh, in a famine. Uh, it really was for them, he wants them to understand. It wasn't a trick, it wasn't a sneaky way of me getting it. Uh, but he also didn't distort the word. So yes, Paul didn't demand Gentiles to go and start obeying Jewish laws, but he also wouldn't let Gentiles keep living like pagans. Now, with pressures from factions on, on kind of both sides, he didn't sway to fit in and suit what people wanted. Instead, he told the truth, plain and simple. And he did that because he understood that if he tampered with either the style or the substance, it would render it pointless. Because it's only going to be God's truth that will save. He picks it up again in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul Paul continues to use this language of the old and the new covenant. He keeps talking about the veil being taken away, which once prevented people from seeing the great glory of God. But he's adding in extra layers of understanding from the Old Testament as he's doing it. he's, He's enriching our understanding of how great the gospel is. So he quotes from Genesis 1, you know, the God where God spoke and there was light and there was therefore life. And he ties it in in verse 6 with the language of the knowledge of the glory of God. It harks back to when Moses and the old covenant got to witness the glory of God. But at the same time, it's in the face of Christ where where Paul in the new covenant had had an experience on the the road to Damascus of seeing Christ and the face of Christ. He's tying together all these things that the salvation of people is an act of new creation. Every time a person becomes a Christian, it isn't just they've had a life-changing experience. It's actually an act of raising the dead. And it's done by, by God's clear word of truth alone. And since it's only the light of the gospel that can save, those of us who carry it around, like Paul, like you and I, we just need to make sure we don't veil it, that we don't twist it, that we don't amend it or distort it either by accident or on purpose. And though it sounds obvious, 
tampering with the message and its presentation can be tempting, particularly if you fancy yourself. You know, a preacher I know of would, uh, would finish evangelistic sermons by asking the congregation to close their eyes and bow their heads. And then he asked for people who wanted to accept Christ to start raising, to, to raise their hands and, and let him know. Uh, he also realised that some were shy and, uh, and that lots of people would rather not be the first, but rather be part of a trend. And so uh, with people's eyes shut, he would start saying, yes, yes, I see that hand and yep, up the back, thank you. Yes, great decision. Yeah, another, thank you. And this is all before any hand had gone up. You know, I can imagine he thought he was actually helping people to respond uh, and helping the gospel appear more glorious by saying that there are all these responses when there weren't any yet. Yeah, but it's Christ that takes away the veil placed by the evil one, the God of this age. It's not you or I, and he doesn't need that kind of help. Yeah, because that kind of help won't bring life where there was death. Yeah, and perhaps you've, you've felt that temptation to change the content a little. You know, just to add to the message's appeal. I remember being challenged by a guy. Um, he was a, a scientist. He was an enthusiastic physicist. And uh, he said to me, oh, surely you don't believe in Satan and the devil. You know, and at that moment, uh, I felt like, you know, I could make the truth a whole lot more appealing if I just kind of left the spiritual force bit uh, to the side and if we got back to something, you know, a little more comfortable and rational and reasonable, you know, got to the kind of, you know, facts, you know, resurrection of Jesus kind of stuff, you know, the tomb's empty. Let's, let's talk about it. And deeper down, if I was probably a bit more honest, I suspect that it wasn't just about adorning the gospel, uh, I would have felt less silly. I would have looked bigger in his eyes if I could have just gone along with him and said, yeah, I'm, I'm not that big on that kind of stuff either. But no man and no woman can fancy themselves great and at the same time declare that God is great. Now, even great servants of God, uh, Billy Graham, a man used powerfully uh, by our Lord, he felt tempted uh, at a mission week in Cambridge University to, to mix the message a little. Uh, he reflected on a mission he did in the 1950s there and, and he was, uh, for the first half of the mission, he felt he was preaching ineffectually. Uh, and he realised partway through it was because he was trying to make himself look impressive and kind of overcome his own insecurities about not being an academic and being up there at Cambridge. And so he was just trying to adorn it a little uh, to make himself look better. How will we display the glory of Christ? By not tampering with the message, uh, either its content or its packaging. I want you to think, just take a moment, when was the last time you shared your experience of Christ with an unbeliever? Now get that moment in your mind. You don't have to share it with anyone, but uh, ask yourself, did you do it plainly? Now your answer will help you, at least, to see whose glory really matters, yours or Christ's. You know, if, if I want Christ to be glorified, then I won't draw attention to myself, but I'll present the message as Christ gave it to me. You know, even the prickly bits. Now, yes, I know we, we can't tell people everything we know in one hit. You know, it would be unfair and unloving to force people to read with you from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation in one hit, just because I don't want to leave any bits out. Um, you know... And yeah, we're not going to give it 
you know, and it would be wrong to do it in the kind of same formulaic way every time. You actually need to consider the relationship as you share it. But, but it's the measure of what we leave out. You know, the way we work out what we leave out is got to be what will help them see the glory of Christ, not, will help, not, not what it is that will help them see the glory of me. second way that uh, we and Paul will show the glory of Christ by allowing ourselves to be visibly weak. Now, you may have noticed in verse 5 that Paul preached Jesus as their Lord and himself as their servant, uh, or more literally, their slave. Paul wants them to get this point and see the truth. He is just a vessel of Christ's glory. And he knows that as long as he talks himself up, that truth will be obscured and they won't see it. So verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. And so then death isn't working us, but life's at work in you. Clay jars were the um, disposable containers of Paul's day. You know, multi-purpose, they were everywhere, every household had them. Uh, they weren't particularly glorious, they weren't particularly precious. If they broke, they broke. Yes, you put precious things in them because they were good for storage, but they themselves weren't particularly special. Um, at best, they're Tupperware. You know, I, you might get a lot of use out of your Tupperware, and I'm led to believe that Tupperware has a lifetime guarantee, but, you know, who's really going to track down the person who sold it to you and get your thing when it melts? Uh, you know, it comes with that guarantee, but you know, it's not a family heirloom, is it? You know, when people come to your house, you don't take them around and use it. Here on the mantelpiece is my great-grandmother's complete set of Tupperware uh, that she's handed on to me. You know, what Paul is saying is, that's me compared to the message and the spirit of Jesus that I have within. And Paul draws again a, a metaphor from creation about being of clay. So in Genesis 3.19, you know, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Now, as human beings, we are profoundly valuable in creation because we're the ones who bear the image of God. And there are some people who need to hang on to that truth really, really tightly uh, that you are valuable because you're the image of God because, you know, for various reasons, you, you haven't heard, you haven't received the love from family and friends that, that you, you should have and you need to hear that over and over again. But in a self-obsessed society like ours, we also need to hear the, the flip side, the antidote. Yeah, compared, to, compared to God, we're just clay pots, we're Tupperware containers. You know, we, we, we aren't glorious, actually, we're just... But if we have Christ, Christ is glorious. And Paul describes how in his desire to make Jesus known, he has been, been squeezed and he's been confused and he's been hunted by his enemies and he's been knocked to the ground over and over again, but he's never been overcome. That is, he's never stopped telling of Christ. 
And so, in fact, his life is just an opportunity to carry around the, the dying of Jesus in verse 10. The, the sense there of death is the, the ongoing act of dying. He's carrying around the sufferings of Christ, the, the sufferings Jesus went through as he led to the cross, more than that kind of final moment when he gave up his spirit. Yeah, and, and the way Paul is going about defending his ministry to people who are doubting him and the quality of his ministry just seems stupid. Imagine someone uh, rocking up to our parish council and uh, approaching them and asking them for some financial support for, their mi- for, for the ministry that they're conducting. And you know, quite rightly, our parish council uh, and our wardens would very sensibly say, yeah, well, how's God been at work in your ministry recently? And the person answers, well, um, I go hungry and thirsty quite often. Uh, currently, I'm homeless, actually. I move from place to place. Uh, you'll notice what I'm wearing is, um, is actually rejects from, from Vinnie's. Uh, the community, well, the lies of the response I've had from the community is that they hate me and uh, they've been pretty brutal with me, but it's all been for Jesus' sake. Yeah, are they going to get far with our parish council finding support for their kind of ministry? Yeah, would you and I be prepared to be viewed that way as worldly failures for the sake of Christ? I've had to write CVs for ministry jobs and I I must confess I've never thought of writing one in the way that Paul does. Now rather than talk up his oratory skill, and he would have, you know, he preached and people listened. He doesn't talk that up though. And he doesn't talk about his successful missionary journeys, even though the Corinthian church, the church he's writing to here, are a direct result of what he did. And he planted many churches across Asia Minor and Greece and, you know, and rather than talking about his great learning and training and education, because unlike the other apostles, you know, like Peter, James, John, who are fishermen, uh, Paul was well educated. He was trained in the law. And yet Paul speaks of his shame. Because no man or woman can fancy themselves great and at the same time declare God is great. And so he speaks of his failures because it shows Christ's glory better. If you're a mathematically inclined person, Paul is is not saying the equation is my weakness plus his strength equals my power. It's my weakness plus his strength equals his power being seen. And that's why Paul hasn't lost heart. Uh, He affirms it, verse 1 and again in verse 16, hasn't lost heart in all the rejection he suffered uh, because it's, it's a testament that Christ sustains. His logic is the very opposite of of Christian triumphalism, of muscular Christianity. Uh, It's the opposite of prosperity teaching and and even the kind of comfortable middle-class trappings we might aspire to. How will Christ be glorified? By us allowing our weakness to be seen. Now, Paul isn't going about manufacturing suffering just for the sake of it. His point is he won't shy away from that which is uncomfortable if it will help serve Jesus. Many of us have clear limits on how we'll serve Jesus. You know, we stick to our strengths. Now, it's true, God does give gifts and he gives us differently. But I wonder whether we limit our service Not because we want to glorify God more in using our gifts, but because we don't want our weaknesses to be found out. Or we don't want to be pushed into or beyond our comfort zone in the ways in which we might serve or love someone else. 
you know, that we, we don't tell of Christ to others because we don't want to be forced into that position of weakness being shown up. Paul's solution is he's just stopped worrying about his own glory. He's accepted he's a clay jar, you know, a Tupperware container. And so he doesn't pursue the things to make himself look good. He just does whatever he thinks will be helpful to make Christ look good. How are we going to glorify Christ? Well, it's by not seeking what makes us look good, but allowing people to see our weakness. And flowing from that, the third and much shorter point, (laughs) we'll glorify Christ by focusing on what produces glory for eternity rather than this world. So in verse 13, Paul cites Psalm 116. Uh, David believed, or the psalmist there, uh, believed that he'd been delivered. And so he wanted to proclaim the greatness of God. Believed and therefore he spoke. And Paul then turns his thoughts to the wonder of the resurrection, the deliverance that he has enjoyed, which opens up the glory of heaven. And in verse 16... He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes, ironically, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul is physically wasting away And quite frankly, I'd think that would be discouraging, but it's not. He doesn't lose heart because his suffering here is productive. It produces an inner renewal that it will lead ultimately to eternal wonder. So in in Paul's mind, um, it's not just that affliction gives way to glory. Affliction, suffering actually produces glory. They're connected to one another intimately. You know, in the same way that if you work out at the gym, you will get stronger, bigger muscles. Um, You know, there's a cause and effect relationship. Suffering for Christ builds an eternal glory that actually far outweighs any glory that this world offers. And again, Paul has been, you know, profoundly countercultural, both to his culture of the time and ours. You know, we we do understand the principle that action now produces results. That's that's why you have a super fund. Uh, But our super funds also show the limits of our eschatological thinking. It's okay, I know I used a big word there. I'm going to explain it. Uh, Eschatology is just a big, fancy, beautiful word that makes it a bit more memorable uh, for the last things, the things at the end. And for our society, eschatology is limited to retirement. That's the last thing. And so people plan the glory that they'll enjoy when they're free from having to turn up to work and that they can just kick back and enjoy and, and go on those kind of long trips that just go on and on with caravans. And it's sad to say there are a lot of Christians whose eschatology is pretty much the same. You know, I asked some Christians this week, uh, you know, when, when it was that they thought about heaven, how often did they think about heaven? When someone dies was the answer I got. Yeah, we daydream of holidays rather than heaven. Yeah, we work hard to secure a comfortable retirement. And you know, I and, and Paul in the passage here understands why, because it's seen. We see holidays, we see retirement. You know, they're being advertised to us all the time. And perhaps it's just that we haven't spent enough time looking into how great heaven will be. Perhaps we've 
bought into the kind of stereotypes that heaven is going to be a little bit mundane, uh, that we'll just keep playing the harp on clouds. Uh, you know, one of the Christians I spoke to is, is kind of thinking, I'm a bit concerned about going to heaven because he likes challenges. And, well, if it's all there, what will happen? You know, maybe it is that we just, we just can't get beyond Sydney being heaven and life's just too good here and that's why we don't want to reflect on the fact that there might be something better. Maybe we're just too enamoured with life here. You know, Richard Baxter uh, lived through the pain of civil war and he wrote this uh, in a book of his called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. I urge you, reader, to bend your soul to study eternity. Busy it about the life to come. Make such meditation your habit, bathe your soul in heaven's delights. And if your backward soul begins to drag its feet and your thoughts wander, call them back. Hold them to their work. Don't put up with their laziness. And when you have, in obedience to God, tried this work and kept a guard on your thoughts until they are accustomed to obey, then you will find yourself in the suburbs of heaven. And then the life of Christianity will be a life of joy. Just as true that, that no man or woman can fancy themselves great and at the same time declare God is great, it's equally true that no man or woman will declare that God is great while they think life here is better than the glory often in heaven. How are we going to display the glory of Christ? By reflecting more and more on the glory to come and being more committed to being a part of that at the very least than the level of commitment we give to our holidays and our super funds. Life is about glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to be failures in this world. You know, I realise that tonight there are lots of people here who are successful uh, and have enjoyed much in terms of the glory of this world. Um, don't get me wrong, I think that's great. I think it's super. Enjoy it. Um, use the responsibility that success brings well, uh, knowing that one day God's going to call you to account for being successful. But don't be mistaken to think that our success will automatically make Christ's glory shine brighter to those around us. Yeah. No man or woman can fancy themselves great and at the same time declare that God is great. Rather, let's be people who fix our eyes on what's unseen as we carry around the death of Christ with us each day. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we... We thank you and praise you that Christ is glorious and worthy of all praise. We thank you for uh, the way that he has redeemed us out of empty lives to delight in salvation. We thank you for the glories of heaven that he has prepared for all of us as his people. And Father, we ask that we would fix our minds on his glory and the glory to come. Uh, guard us from being concerned with our own glory. And use us that people around here and around the world might know how great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.